everybody, it's Hannah with Rights and Relationships. Um, sorry for my long hiatus. I am in school full time, so that obviously takes priority. Um, but I definitely still want to keep doing this. Hopefully I'll have a little bit more time this semester, but you know how life goes. Um, so today's episode is going to be about consent. Obviously, this is a really big topic when you're talking about um, relationships, reproductive health, uh, sexual health. But of course, consent isn't exclusive to sexual activities. So I think consent is something you can talk about very early on. Obviously, um, we don't want to talk about consent when it's too late. Um, like high school and colleges should be teaching about consent, but it should start long, long before that, um, as early as possible, in my opinion. Um, and it doesn't have to be a discussion about sex. Consent is about body autonomy and respect for others' body autonomy. Um, and so something as simple as a handshake or a hug, you should ask for. Um, and it's really as simple as that to begin. When you're talking about this with children, I think it also reinforces the idea that they are allowed to say no. Which I feel like is something that isn't necessarily allowed when you're a kid. Maybe not just when you're a kid either, you know. It teaches people that their bodies are their own um, and that they're allowed to protect them in any way that they choose and that people have to respect those choices and those no's. But in terms of sexual activities, Planned Parenthood has a really good like acronym for it. Um, they use fries, like the food. Um, <clears throat> so each letter stands for something else. F means um, that consent is freely given. R stands for it is reversible. I is for informed. E is for enthusiastic. And S is for specific. Um, and those are, I think, really good guidelines to follow when you're just learning about consent, um, when you are engaging in consent or sexual activities. Um, it's just a really good practice to go off of. Um, of course, you know, consent isn't like a checklist that you go through. It's not you know, checking off all the boxes and then, you know, you're free to do whatever. So I think that is something that people struggle with, with consent. Um, and, you know, regardless of gender, I think that's something they people have a difficult time with. You know, especially if you're inexperienced, um... Or if you're with someone that you've never had sex with before, you know, it can be 
awkward um, to initiate that conversation about respect for boundaries um, and have that very clear, honest, vulnerable conversation about it. But it is really important. You know, one of the things that goes along with that is sharing your intentions with the other person um, and your limitations, not just in the sense of whatever sexual activity you're engaging in in that moment, but also things like are you looking for a relationship and the other person is just looking for a one-night stand? Um, and that's obviously really, really awkward. Um, but those conversations can save a lot of hurt feelings, um, a lot of potential trauma. And so you have to get on the same page. Like I said, if, if you're more inexperienced, if you are less familiar with the person, um, you know, it's your first time engaging with this person, it can be hard to say no and be firm with that no. And so, you know, going back to teaching about this early on, that's why I think it's so important is because you know, when I look back on my sexual education in school, there was no discussion about consent. Not not a single one. Um, and so, I think if we don't teach early on that it is okay to say no, and that we have to respect when someone says no, that's where we get into trouble. I think especially for women, it's more difficult. There's this kind of underlying fear of, well, what will happen if I say no? Because, unfortunately, we see it all the time where a woman says no to even going on a date with someone or giving someone their phone number and they get screamed at or attacked or... God forbid somebody goes on a shooting rampage, but that's the reality of the entitlement men feel to people's bodies. And I'm going to try not to do this in binary terms because we know anybody can be a victim of sexual assault, anybody can be a perpetrator, but most perpetrators are straight cis men. So going back to the um, fries example, it ties in with the idea that consent has to be freely given, so there's no immediate threat. If you say no, there's no coercion. One of the partners is not more vulnerable than the other. Um, so, you know, is somebody wasted or intoxicated in some fashion? And if so, they can't give consent. It's also reversible. 
um, which again, I think is something that people have a hard time with, again, especially men, but consent isn't truly consent unless it can be revoked, and so it's really important to be able to say and be able to listen to someone when they say, you know what, I think I changed my mind, you know, I'm I'm not cool with this, I don't want to go any further, then you stop. Again, I think that's something that men in particular have a difficult time with. Um, and then I, it has to be informed. Um, and that goes back to having those conversations and being okay with saying no and hearing no and establishing clear boundaries. You know, it also ties into the idea that asking for a certain thing or talking about sex is going to ruin the mood, um, which personally I think is crap. <laughs> In fact, I think just the opposite. I think it adds to intimacy. I think it brings about a sense of connection in a way. Even if you're not looking to establish a relationship with this person, at least you know that you're both comfortable with what you're doing in the moment. Um, and I think that makes it more enjoyable for both people in that goes right into how consent should be enthusiastic. Um, you know, we've kind of heard the idea of yes means yes, and again, there's nuance with that if there's coercion or manipulation involved. Sex is supposed to be enjoyable, you know? Um, and if you're not totally into something, um, you know, it's totally okay to say so. So consent has to be enthusiastic, which means, like all the rest of these, um, it has to be an ongoing conversation. It, um, it's not just a one and done kind of conversation or a box that you check off. Um, you know, you have to check in with your partner as you're engaging in sexual activities. People think that that will ruin the mood and whatever. Um, and personally, I just think you're boring and bad at dirty talk. But <laughs> that's just me. Um, and again, it's a lot easier when you have an established relationship with someone, I think. But I know that it can be challenging. Um, especially if sex is something that you're new to. Um, because if you haven't had conversations about consent either with your parents or your friends or in school or with your partner, then it's a lot more difficult to take that initiative to say no or to be comfortable enough to say, you know what, that doesn't really feel good. Why don't you try this? 
there's a lot of vulnerability when it comes to consent. Um, and I think a lot of people, regardless of gender, are uncomfortable with that. I think especially when it comes to sex, there's a lot of vulnerability involved. There's a lot of intimacy. Even if there's not really love involved, I think there's still... I think sex is still a very intimate thing. And so you you have to learn how to say no and you have to learn what feels good and what doesn't and how to express that and you have to learn how to hear those things as well um, and be receptive to that and not take it personally but again I think that needs to be a two-way street um, I think both partners should be able to do that. And I think it's great when people can acknowledge that because it means that it means that they want this to be a pleasurable experience, not just for them, but for you. Um, and so having that enthusiasm um, and that those check-ins every now and then, um, are really great. Um, and the last one, consent should be specific. Again, this goes back to the idea that this has to be an ongoing conversation. You know, consent to one sexual act is not consent to another. And so, again, it has to be ongoing. It has to be very clearly defined. And I mean, this... This looks different for everybody, I think. Um, like I said, it's not just a checklist. Um, everybody has their own levels of comfortability. Um, and, you know, I feel like it's pretty contextually dependent, um, especially when you're looking at somebody in a long-term relationship or in marriage. Um, those things don't automatically mean that your partner will consent to sex. But when you know somebody that well um, and that intimately, there is a lot more nonverbal consent involved. Um, you are familiar with their facial expressions and their body language. It gets a little easier as you establish a relationship with somebody, long-term relationships, marriage, it's not an excuse to just skip these conversations. Um, they do have to happen, but I think they happen a little bit more naturally, um, a little bit more non-verbally. I think it's a little easier as time goes on, you know, whether, whether or not you have an established relationship or not, I feel like as you get older, um, as you get more comfortable with yourself, as you get more comfortable with sex, it'll be a lot easier to express your likes and dislikes and be able to say no 
And I think that just comes with knowing yourself and being more confident in yourself. And I think it also comes with the knowledge that sex should be a pleasurable experience for whoever's involved, all parties involved. Going back to the binary of men and women, women are very much recipients of sex in our culture. Um, sex is something that is done to them. And I think it goes back to the idea that sex is a tool for reproduction. But I think there are pretty few instances where a couple sits down and says, let's try to have a baby. The majority of the time, sex is for pleasure. So the idea that sex is exclusively for reproduction is pretty incorrect in my opinion. Um, it certainly can result in pregnancy, but I don't think it should be expected, especially if you're using contraception, obviously. I feel like, you know, ingraining the fear of pregnancy or STDs in uh, teenagers and young adults um, really contributes to some internal shame. Um, and it contributes to the idea that sex isn't or shouldn't be pleasurable. But sex leads to pleasure far more than it leads to pregnancy. And I think it's important to talk about pleasure when we talk about consent and when we discuss sexual education. And again, unfortunately, that's not something that was ever touched upon um, when I was in school. I highly doubt that it is now. You know, I think if we don't understand pleasure, and if we don't explore our likes and dislikes, then it's hard to give that enthusiastic yes, because we're so unsure of what's happening or what we should be feeling. Going back to the idea that sex is for reproductive purposes only, um, you know, I think that's where the idea that masturbation is wrong or sinful comes from. Any sexual activity that cannot result in pregnancy is awful. You know, it it shouldn't be explored. Again, I think that's where a lot of the shame comes from as far as feeling pleasure when you're engaging in sexual activities. Um, because it feels wrong. And personally, I think that's why masturbation is important. It helps you become more intimate with your body. Um, it helps you explore sexuality and your likes and dislikes without 
having to engage with another person um, and confronting that fear of pregnancy or STDs or conversations about consent. And I think understanding and being in tune with your body, um, especially in a sexual nature, will help you create that enthusiastic yes. And I think it will help help you to express when you don't like something. I think it can make us a lot more comfortable in saying yes and no. Because, you know, like I said, how do we how do we give an enth- enthusiastic yes or a solid no if we don't understand our own pleasure? You know, and and I don't want to make it seem like you should have this anxiety about pleasing your partner because, like I said, you should both get something out of it. Um, it should be an enjoyable experience. I think people will let you know when they like something during sex. Um, I feel like that part is pretty obvious. Maybe not. But if you're ever unsure or you want to try something different, you know, it's important to check in before moving on or continuing. You know, like I said, um, consent to one sexual act is not consent to another. And one of my favorite anti-choice arguments is that consent to sex is consent to pregnancy. And that is absolute bullshit. Oh man, I try really hard not to curse on this, but man, that one gets to me. Because it's just utter crap. You know, like I said, sex leads to pleasure far, far more than it leads to pregnancy. Um, again, especially if you're using some sort of birth control. If you're using birth control, it's pretty clear that you're not consenting to pregnancy, even if that birth control fails. You know, this idea that consent to an activity is consent to any number of the consequences is absolutely incorrect. Unfortunately, not everyone knows um, the consequences of sex. Um, some didn't have sex education. You know, they don't have the resources to get birth control, etc. But that doesn't mean we should deny them health care um, if they choose to get an abortion. You know, it's like the idea that I could get into a car crash if I drive a car, but are we going to blame me for driving the car and say, oh, well, you knew better. Sucks to suck. Like, you're just going to have to deal with this broken leg or whatever. Same with smoking. 
um, people choose to smoke cigarettes and you know what, they know that that can cause a lot of harm to their body and if they get a lung cancer diagnosis, are we just going to say, oh, you knew better, we're not going to treat you? And the answer is no. We don't deny people health care because we personally disagree with the choices that they've made. And, you know, I think that goes back to the idea that anti-choice people don't view abortion as health care. Um, but it is. It's a medical procedure. It's um, one of the safest medical procedures out there, in fact. Um, it's even safer than getting your wisdom teeth out. So consent to sex is definitely not consent to pregnancy. And a lot of times, people will have thought about or discussed what will happen if they do get pregnant before they have sex. If you're engaging in sexual activities, it's important to be aware of the consequences. Again, like I said, not everyone has that knowledge, unfortunately, because of the abysmal state of our sexual education. But it's important to consider what you would do if you or your partner got pregnant. Maybe it's best to make that decision on your own, um, if that's what keeps you safe. And, you know, that goes into the idea of something called reproductive coercion. I've said this before. Forcing someone to get an abortion and forcing someone to stay pregnant is the same violation of bodily autonomy. And, you know, reproductive coercion can look like forcing someone to get an abortion or forcing someone to stay pregnant by whatever means necessary. Unfortunately, I feel like reproductive coercion is a little more covert than that usually. Um, it's a little more insidious. It involves a lot of manipulation. Um, it can involve tampering with birth control. All genders can do this. But you know, the idea of threatening to leave someone if they don't get an abortion or they decide to get an abortion, um, that's reproductive coercion. Offering someone money, um, saying that you will pay for the abortion, you have to go get it now because I gave you the money, that's reproductive coercion. Unfortunately, this happens, um, more often than not in, like, long-term relationships, um, marriages especially, you know, if one person wants kids and the other one doesn't or doesn't feel ready yet, um, then reproductive coercion can occur. And obviously, not every long-term relationship or marriage has this happen. I know plenty of healthy couples who 
have these conversations about what they would do if there was an unplanned pregnancy. How does each person feel about abortion, um, about birth control? I think and I hope that reproductive coercion isn't all that common, um, but unfortunately it does happen. Clearly the idea of consent when it comes to reproductive choices is very integral to sexual activities um, and consent within a relationship. But another anti-choice argument that I always find really interesting is that is when they say it's not your body, you know, it's a separate being. And again, to me, that's just another red herring. It has no bearing on whether or not someone chooses to remain pregnant or not. Um, you know, regardless of whether or not you believe that the fetus is attached to you or part of your body or it isn't, doesn't really make a difference in the long run if you don't want to be pregnant. You know, and I find that really interesting because they talk about giving fetuses, you know, human rights, equal rights. And the fact is that if fetuses are equal, then they also have to respect my bodily autonomy, just like everybody else. Um, and if I say that you cannot use my body, then I have every right to remove you. It goes back to the idea that consent has to be able to be revoked, or it's not true consent. Uh, and it has to be able to be revoked throughout the entirety of pregnancy. And I know that is a really, really polarizing opinion, especially among pro-choicers. There are many, many people who consider themselves pro-choice but agree with term limits, and I am not one of those people. Recently, there has been a lot of outbursts at the state of New York um, who essentially abolished term limits. Um, so someone can get an abortion at any stage in their pregnancy. And there's a lot of misconceptions. There are so many lies being thrown around by our president and, you know, other congressmen and people in power, but the reality is people do not go through eight or nine months of pregnancy and then just change their mind. They don't. That's not what happens at all. Unless there is a medical necessity, doctors won't perform abortions that late anyway. That's exactly what the New York law states is that there has to be some medical necessity, either some sort of fetal abnormality um, or the fetus has died in utero 
or there is a medical emergency where the mother's life is in danger. You know, to hear people talk about quote-unquote late-term abortions like the people who get them are monsters or horrible people, it, it absolutely breaks my heart. There have been so many people since this law was passed that have come out and shared their stories and unfortunately for them that means reliving some trauma and I don't think anybody should have to do that. I don't think anybody should feel like they have to share their abortion story in order to defend themselves but I'm so thankful and proud of the people who have shared their stories because I know that that can't be easy um, and this idea that it was a flippant decision and that they were just tired of being pregnant or that they hate babies or whatever it's just disgusting people who have abortions later than like 20 weeks 24 weeks even you have to understand that these people wanted their pregnancies they were ready to have a child these people probably started talking about names and started decorating the nursery and people like this who are kind and brave enough to share their stories I think we do them a real disservice by looking at abortion in such black and white terms because there's so much nuance and there's so much context that people don't ever see um, or hear about when it comes to these decisions and I don't think that's just in regards to late-term abortions um, I think especially late-term abortions there is a, an absolute sense of loss, but I feel like that can exist even if you get an abortion at nine weeks, because all feelings are valid when it comes to abortion. You know, uh, there's a whole range of emotions that you can feel, and... I don't think it can explain that to someone who's never experienced an abortion. But the idea of consenting to pregnancy or consenting to an abortion fits in very well with what it looks like to consent to other activities. Um, and like I said at the beginning, consent is all about 
bodily autonomy and respect and vulnerability. And just as there is some internalized shame around sex and pleasure for some people, there can be some internalized shame around abortion or pregnancy for some people. And however they decide to handle that is completely up to them. You know, however they come to their decision, whatever decision that they choose is completely valid. Their reasons behind choosing it, their feelings about it are absolutely valid. But consent is so critical in all areas of our lives. Um, and unfortunately, so many of us haven't had conversations about it. Um, we weren't taught about consent in school or by our parents. And I think that's changing a little bit, which is a great thing. But I feel like we still have a long way to go. And I think it's best to start early. Um, like I said, talk to your kids about respecting personal space. That's, I think that's where we can all start. Um, teach your kids that it's okay to say no if they feel uncomfortable with something. And then, you know, as you get older, you can continue to practice consent in your daily lives. Just as an example for me, it's hugs. Um, I come from a family where we hug so much. We hug hello, we hug goodbye, and so I have to pause and remember that not everyone feels the way I do about giving hugs. I have some really great friends who will hold me accountable uh, if I forget, um, but I've done so much better as I've gotten older, and it's just a matter of practice makes perfect. Um, you just have to remember to pause for a second and take the other person into consideration and say, hey, it's great to see you. Can I give you a hug? And I've found that most people are pretty receptive. I don't hear no a lot, but occasionally I do. Um, and that's fine. You know, it's not something I take personal. It's just a matter of respecting the other person and going about our day. And so being mindful and aware of what consent looks like, um, the different ways that you can practice it in your own life is definitely the first starting point. And like I said, I think practice makes perfect, so, so I don't think you should feel weird asking for permission. And I think practicing how to respect someone's no will make us better at it in the future and in more intimate settings. I don't think we'll take it so personally 
if it's just something that is a part of our everyday lives and conversations. So that's all I have for today. Um, if there was something I left out and you want to let me know, or if there is something I got wrong and you want to let me know, please do. Or if there is a certain topic that you want me to cover, um, I am more than happy to hear from you. I have an email address for this podcast. It is rrprochoicepodcast at gmail.com. Um, please feel free to email me um, with any sorts of suggestions or comments. And hopefully my next episode won't be six months from now. <laughs> um, but thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time on Rights and Relationships.